Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist. Um, Shane couldn't be with us tonight, but um, tonight I'm excited to welcome Eric Raglan, author who is going to be releasing his debut collection, Nightmare Yearnings, um, I believe in September, the co-editor of Proliscariot and podcaster at Curse Morsels. And we're also joined by Fred Venturini, author of The Escape of Light, The Heart Does Not Grow Back, and To Dust You Shall Return, which is going to be out later this month from Turner Publishing. Uh, welcome to the show, Eric and Fred. Thank you, Rich. Yeah, what a delight. Ready to go. Glad to be back. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And yeah, just for uh, ease of use, um, you know, I'll have questions for each one of you individually, but also some uh, kind of like group questions. And just for uh, ease of use, we'll just go alphabetically. So we'll start with Eric and then uh, go with you, Fred. Sounds good. Awesome. So, um, yeah, we normally kickstart the show by having our... Uh, our guests kind of give a new kid at school speech. Sometimes Shane pitches it as like the uh, prison yard speech. But yeah, just a little bit about yourselves, um, your writing, you know, and anything else you would like listeners about you. Well, I, I can go. I can jump in. Uh, yeah, I'm Eric Raglan. I am the writer of Nightmare Yearnings, which is going to be coming out September 4th. It's a collection of queer and weird and anti-capitalist short stories and uh it's it's really good uh, <laughs> i hope it's okay so it won't work but i like it a lot uh, i i wrote it and i like it <laughs> and um uh let's see i i am also the co-editor of pearl iscariot which was a well was is a collection of anti-capitalist short stories by a variety of authors we've got Haley piper we've got joanna Koch, we got laurel hightower um lots of cool people in that anthology there and yeah you can check those out on uh, amazon you can get them on gumroad my website you can i don't know uh <laughs> contact me if you're interested in either of those and i, I don't want to make this a a salesman thing but uh i do want folks to to read good stuff and pearl it's really good stuff so yeah <laughs> yeah right. awesome cool <laughs> well uh you know I think I might have got the alphabetical thing wrong. I just hear alphabetical order and having the last name Venturini, I immediately just zone out. Because when I was in high school, I was last for everything, having a V name <laughs> in a small class. So, yeah. But I am Fred Venturini. I'm the author of uh, The Heart Does Not Grow Back, The Escape of Light, and the forthcoming on June 22nd, To Dust You Shall Return. I like to joke that, uh, you know, I got 11 scars from 11 separate incidents. Uh, one of them, I was set on fire when I was 10 years old, which always makes for an interesting story Jeez. around a couple of beers and whatnot. And uh, just super excited to have this new book out. I always, I, I'm, I've been saying about this one, I leave it all on the field. If I never write another thing, I'm satisfied because I did everything I wanted to do with this one. Uh, I live in the uh, Metro East of Illinois that is kind of just outside St. Louis. Uh, been married for 15 years as of two days ago. And I got a nine-year-old daughter, couple of, got a dog, got a cat, right? You got to cover all the pet bases when you're a writer. And uh, <laughs> looking forward to a fun 2021. Yeah, and yeah, I think we all are, especially after, you know, 
how things went last year. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to say that things can only go up from here. <laughs> but but I, um, I'm a little skeptical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. But I, I like I have to have some little, uh, you know, thread of positivity. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, um, both of you guys, um, like you had said, uh, Fred, that you you really enjoyed, uh, you know, what you put into uh, to dust you shall return, and um, you know how it's kind of you could just write that and you know, be happy if there was nothing else. But I got to say for um, both of you guys, um, you know, I've read both of your um, most recent releases or the ones that are going to be coming out soon. And um, each of them, you know, were very unique, um, very unique takes. Um, like Eric, um, you, you put a lot of things in your collection excuse me a lot of things in your collection like unique takes on horror like you know i don't want to spoil the stories for anyone but you know whether it be monsters or just events that happen um you know a lot of things that i haven't really seen done and sort of kind of the themes that you weave through them and then um fred for yours um you know, the, kind of the meshing of genres, um, like when Shane and I had started in Keist, it was because we had both, you know, kind of came up in the uh, horror genre, but we also liked, you know, dark, gritty crime and noir stories. And I feel like um, To Dusty Shall Return is like the perfect blending of those genres. And I just loved how you did that. Um, so, you know, all gushing aside over your guys' books, I'm just kind of curious, you know, your approaches to whether it be horror or just anything that you write in general, because um, it seems like you both kind of, you know, bring in a little bit of everything. It's not like we, when people think horror, you know, they think maybe one thing. But I think in the case of uh, both of you guys that, you know, you're able to weave in kind of elements of different genres and things that are a little bit different. Yeah, I... I think I'd get bored if I just wrote straight horror all the time or if I wrote, you know, straight one type of horror, whether that's, I don't know, uh, cosmic horror, folk horror, or slashers or anything like that. Uh, and so I think that it's sort of natural to, especially if you're a short story writer like me, to, to want to be a little eclectic with it. Um, I think that's reflected in my tastes across the board in terms of like, literature i have pretty eclectic literature tastes i have eclectic taste in music and that sort of thing and i think it's just fun to sort of dip my toes in all sorts of different areas but i would say like as far as you know what what pond i'm spending the most time in so to speak when i'm what i'm dipping my toes in the most it would probably be a weird horror um i think more so than the capacity to scare someone i think the capacity to uh, confuse and disrupt the reality of someone is is more interesting to me and so i think as far as my approach to horror i'm more interested in that confusion and that disorientation than i am in actually uh you know having jump scares or or whatever nothing against jump scares at all i just think you know in terms of what i'm interested in it's that disorientation um even with the eclecticism of drawing from different uh um, areas and subgenres and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just to piggy, piggyback on that, you know, I was kind of an '80s VHS 
horror. Yeah. And my grandmother just handed me Stephen King books, just hand over fist, right? So I get raised and all this horror stuff. And then my novel's like, I don't write a straight horror novel at all. So like the, the, uh, <laughs> the Heart Does Not Go Back is a superhero sci-fi coming of age with a horror thread. Uh, and then, of course, you know, a year and a half ago, basically The Fault in Our Stars, but with Burns, a, a YA love story. And now this one, uh, which is The Equal Love. You know, if you're, if you're a VHS 80s kid watching the slasher movies and all those great horror movies, you're, you're also, and, and take it from a guy who was hurt a lot, watching a lot of movies, uh, you're also kind of in that, that, that first real wave of like awesome action movies, right? You know, the, all the Arnold movies and uh, the Rambo movies and Stallone and Die Hard and all that. So, mm-hmm. you know, To Dust You Shall Return is basically a, a meshing of the two. You know, so I, I think I've done three times over, done something that I wanted to do with the genre that I enjoyed, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the the first book was basically I looked at Wolverine and said he regenerates, but way too fast. They're just making him invisible. What if he healed as slowly as I do, right? And that's mm-hmm. where that entire thing sprouts from. So, and and I think that's the point that I'm making here is I think horror is basically everywhere. <laughs> it's already there. All you have to do uh, is wake it up with your with your work or your stories or, you know, something like that. And, and all the true crime stuff that is so big right now. You know, my wife won't read a, a horror novel or watch a horror movie, but she watches Dateline every Friday. And to me, that's very, very dark stuff. And I think <laughs> yeah. one of the reason is when you ask somebody who's not a horror fan what horror is, they think of an iconic slasher almost every single time. That's what they think horror is. Oh, I didn't like that Freddy movie. Or I didn't like Scream. That scared me. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case, you know. So, uh, yeah, trying to do a little something different with all these genres. And like I said, once I nail them all, I can feel like I can rest, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that um, because, you know, like you said, horrors everywhere. And like, you know, I'm always I always love, you know, talking to writers that we have on the show kind of about how they view it. And I feel like you guys both, you know, laid that out. But like you said, there's so many different things um, like horrors everywhere. Like you said, you can find horror and kind of like the true crime thing. And um, like you said, people might pick up on slashers or they think horror just has to be, you know, ghosts and monsters. Um, but, you know, a lot of horror writers, you know, some of them don't even really utilize the supernatural. Like you have someone like Jack Ketchum, who a lot of his works, you know, is kind of about the darkness that's like in other people. Um, so I thought that that was a really good point. And also kind of how you said about the 80s action movies. I just wanted to touch on that. Um that's probably why this book resonated so well with me. Cause it was kind of the same mix that I had. Um, like my dad, he would always show me like, he would let me rent horror movies, but then he would always rent like, you know, some of those really cheesy Steven Seagal movies. Oh, oh yes. Uh, I would love to host just an entire Steven Seagal marathon, you know? Uh, yeah. So that'd be oh, so much yeah. fun. <laughs> And still doing movies. We were just talking about this one of my friends the other day. Still doing movies, still cutting to the foot on the face so you don't actually see him kicking anybody. Still can't run. (laughs) (laughs) He still can't. 
<laughs> yeah, that was a big thing with those movies. And uh, I'm sorry, I uh, cut you off earlier. No, no, I wasn't cut off at all. Uh, moving on, I think I'm ready. Yeah, I mean, at some point, I'm going to circle back into my 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 beef with modern uh, action movies as much as I like them. I will circle back <laughs> to that eventually. So let's. Uh... I'm very curious about this. I've been I, I've had a steady diet of '90s action movies about the past six months. And there's some great ones there. And I, I, Rich, I don't want to derail your podcast, but I'm real curious. No, no. <laughs> By all means, I'm into that stuff too. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I. You know what? I'm just gonna go for it. Here's the thing. Whenever I say here's the thing, you know, my friends start rolling their eyes and they know they're in for it. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. I I love right. I love these. I love the reactivated badass character, and that character transcends. All genres, okay? You know, Western, you know, Unforgiven, Will Money. Oh, I'm not like that anymore. Oh, you'd be William Money. You never see him in his complete badass state till like the end, okay? And I think that's the way you do it. I think that the Unforgiven treats that archetype very, very well. In sci-fi, right, we have it in The Last Jedi. You have old deactivated Luke. I was waiting for it. I was into it. We're going to do the reactivated badass here. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't work out, you know, kind of, sort of. Uh, but, you know, now you see the reactivated badass, like they reactivate him 15 minutes into the movie. Uh, John uh-huh. Wick, of course, is the, is the new thing. You know, they kill his dog, and it's a, it's a great way to set him up. I, I love how the reactivated badass is basically seen through the lens of other people. Right? Oh, he's the Bobby mm-hmm. Allen. He's the boogeyman. Yeah. And But 15, 20 minutes into the movie, whether it's him – or it's Liam Neeson and Taken, or it's Creasy and Man on Fire. You have all these reactivated revenge action hero badasses activated immediately, and then the movie is like a video game. They just (laughs) go through levels, (laughs) destroying everybody, and are never really threatened. Of course you know, okay, they're going to get captured and escape. We have to have this little dip. But you never really feel like, oh, he's met his match. Right. And, and that's part of what I wanted to do with this one. I always thought it'd be awesome if, uh, you know, I get the idea for the book. What if John Wick is going through the movie and he just shoots the piss out of somebody right in the middle of it and it doesn't really work? Well, what's he going to do? Right. You know, so. Uh, yeah. uh, so that's that's another a wrinkle or level you could kind of bring uh, to the action movie genre. And I think the other thing is I hate saying this, but it's just missing Arnold. He was a character within the character, right? like, like tried to remake Total Recall and was a very competent remake, okay? But it's missing Arnold Schwarzenegger, the charm of the accent, the beefiness, the, the weird acting tics, right? You watch Commando again, the movie's a total non sequitur. There's so many things that don't make sense, but you can watch it repeatedly because of Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Freddie Mercury casual you know, Bennett, the, the, the interesting villain and the character wearing the chain mail. They just don't do interesting stuff like that anymore. And we, and we don't have that ham it up kind of bigger than life action hero guy. Now, I know you're going to think The Rock, okay? But I don't think the charm is exactly the same. And mm-hmm. I, think he, mm-hmm. I think he actually has too much range <laughs> so, yeah. to really do what Arnold did. So. Uh, there'll never I, be another, I guess. You know, Fred, I'm, I'm wondering if superhero movies are partly to blame for the activation of the badass like 15 minutes in because superhero movies Mm -hmm. 
I always get the sense that, you know, Captain America is never truly threatened. He's never truly in danger. And I wonder if action movies maybe subconsciously are taking a, a non-superhero action movies are taking maybe a, a page out of the superhero book in that sense. And, I, you know, I'm just riffing here, but yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good insight, you know, and, uh, you know, the same problem. Why are we bored with some of these superhero movies? Because it's the same thing. It's the yeah. same thing. I think mm-hmm. the one chance they had to do something truly interesting to show us a villain that a superhero couldn't destroy was in Wonder Woman, where it could have been, wow, mm-hmm. men just kill each other, and there's nothing I can do about it. She thinks it's war, right, a god, and maybe mm-hmm. it turns out, I was hoping the entire time, maybe it turns out we're just going to kill each other. You know, that's just mankind. <laughs> you just got to deal with reality. Of course, that didn't happen. She fought an old man in the clouds shooting lightning bolts at each other. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you could just see as an executive chomping on the cigar saying, where's the big battle? You got to get the big fight. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's CGI tax. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's interesting you bring that up, uh, Eric, because I think that, you know, at least for me, like I watch a lot of movies, but they're usually strictly crime or horror or something with a couple things sprinkled in. But I was never like a big fan of like those superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like like they're kind of like when you think action movies now, at least, you know, from what I perceive that's pretty much what you think of. You don't really think about um, like some of those early, like early action movies, like uh, you were saying, Fred, but I don't know if either of you have seen this. Um, I watched it just, I had no expectations, but uh, that Amazon series, the boys, it's like a superhero show. I thought that was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good on like flipping that thing that you had mentioned, uh, Eric, about like the, Mm activated you know character super early in um like in that show that you know they all have like these issues and they all are like super powered but kind of the way that they weave the story like you know they have weaknesses and problems just like you know everybody else um normal people in those shows whereas like some of those other superhero movies you know they're almost elevated so far above everyone else yeah you know Mm -hmm. i just used to say we got we got so lucky that such good and pure people get these powers right like clark kent man we're lucky that he got Mm -hmm. some asshole that just wanted to kill the entire town or destroy everybody and bright burn is a play on that you know captain america gets the super serum uh here's something i always thought was weird so the billionaire right the billionaire turns into the hero in with iron man and with bruce wayne right and and then you have kind of the the from the streets from nothing anarchist trying to come up and show you know the, the rich people are abusing everybody and it's not about money that's the joker he's the villain mm-hmm. like you could totally if you just described it uh you know in in third person and said what do you think of this person versus this person well, i like that one better yeah <laughs> uh, i always think yeah. that's uh interesting that we make richness into a superpower uh is one you know and uh mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and the other thing is, you know, with the boys, I think you've reached a point where a genre reaches a point where there's so many established rules that you can do something completely different. 
right? And I think that that's a place mm-hmm. where horror is very, very ripe. You know, uh, there's so many established rules and tropes that you could do completely fresh and different stories off of them. And instead we get kind of this, uh, I don't know, this wink, wink meta stuff that I don't think is the mm-hmm. same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, th- I think that stuff is tired at this point. I, I've seen it enough and I'm like, okay, I, I know that you're aware of the long history of doing this exact same thing you've been doing for a long time, but the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I mean, let's, let's, let's get past that and just, try to get to something genuinely new and fresh and not, I don't know. It, it seems lazy to me. That's mm-hmm. the, that is the thing I hate the most about horror is uh, any sort of meta breaking the fourth wall kind of jokey stuff. You know what I mean? Like, Oh Fred, Hey, watch cabin in the woods. You're going to love it. I didn't love it. <laughs> it's perfectly okay mm-hmm. for me to not love it. I don't love stuff where you have to freeze frame everything just to see some fanboy thing in the background that really has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of on your point, like, uh, you know, about how with like Batman and stuff, they made like richness, a superpower, you know, it's kind of interesting that you had mentioned that because, um, a few of your stories, um, Eric, you know, kind of deal with those same sort of themes um, mm-hmm. and, you know, co-edit uh, Proliscariot. So um, for people who aren't familiar with Proliscariot or, you know, some of the stories that use those themes in your collection, you know, what kind of drove you to, like, help put together that anthology? Does it inform some of your writing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess in regard to that, to that anthology specifically, it originated as many good ideas do as a stupid pun. I was like, proletariat, proliscariat. And that's like, oh, that's really funny. That's stupid. <laughs> and then I made I made the joke at some point about, you know, oh, let's make an anthology out of this. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess we're doing it now. And so I enlisted the help of uh, some friends and uh, a couple people I hadn't met before who turned out to be really lovely and wonderful people. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I what was your question, Rich? I <laughs> <laughs> no, I gave a little origin a, story there, but uh, <laughs> no, that's cool. That's uh, that was part of it. That's you know, I have this bad tendency to mash like all of my questions into this long thing, and then people are like, oh, "What?" But yeah, no, it was the I, origin I story. <laughs> it was the origin story thing, and kind of you know, <clears throat> like using that kind of theme, you know, of like you know capitalism and things like that, you know. Um, kind of inspires you to kind of use that in your stories and like why is that like such an important topic for you yeah well i i would say i've been an anti-capitalist since i was probably i mean since i was a teenager um i was (laughs) this sounds very strange but i was lucky enough to at my school have a young socialist club that i joined when i was 14 that some teacher sponsored and um i did you know, I think from there I sort of came to learn about the ways in which uh, uh, capitalism was a, sort of a, a scary and uh, horrifying force in our world. Um, admittedly, when I joined, it was mostly because a friend of mine had joined, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I'll tag along. I don't know what socialism is." Um, but um, yeah, I I think about you know as far as horror and capitalism together either in that anthology or in my own collection. 
um, there are so many ways in which capitalism is a source of horror in this world. And I guess to give an idea of, you know, some of the stuff that really preoccupies me, like one of them is the idea that something like the field of healthcare can be uh, monetized, can be become a place for profit rather than for a, a place for, you know, healing. Um, it, instead, people, at least in the U.S., can become bankrupt for something as, you know, uh, insignificant as a broken arm, for instance, or mm-hmm. um, someone maybe neglects getting cancer treatment because they simply can't afford it and they end up suffering in all these horrible ways. And so I, I think as as far as, you know, my interest in uh, capitalism and horror, it's just it really seems like a natural pairing to me. And I know not everyone's going to agree with me uh, politically there, but um yeah, as, as far as what preoccupies my mind, I I think those two uh, <laughs> go hand and claw pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, you know, and the, and too, like the way the way that I I like the way you kind of use that in your stories because, like you said, it's it's something that you know impacts a lot of people. Um, and you know, horror isn't always just like you know, something that's just kind of scary. It's also a way to kind of, it's also kind of like a lens you can use to kind of, you know, relate to things that are happening in the real world or, you know, things like that. And um, you did like a really good job with that in a lot of the stories, um, especially like sick leave, but yeah. Okay. And like, yeah, anytime. And, you know, kind of the reasoning that you gave, like that's one of the things, you know, whether people, agree with like the politics of it or not um you know it's kind of helping to bring you know like some of those you know fresh ideas in there like it's a different spin and that's kind of what i was getting at earlier you know not just those stories but those stories are included to where you know it's something that you don't really see a lot of and by Mm -hmm. kind of using that you know you're able to come up with something that's a little bit different and unique to your own voice yeah well thank you my mm-hmm. one hope with it is that I, and I think this is the danger of any sort of politics informed fiction writing. I, I never want it to become preachy. I never want it to become more of a thesis statement than a, a story for w- with the intent of entertaining and widening someone's perspective in an interesting way or presenting them with a, a thought about the world. Maybe they hadn't considered before. I, I never want it to be a, <laughs> a mm-hmm. screed, a, a speech or anything like that. So, um, Yeah. yeah and um oh go ahead fred sorry i was just thinking that you probably hit the sweet spot when an entire political party that disagrees with you doesn't disagree with you on tax rates or policy they have written their own horror story where you devilishly drink the blood of children in pizzerias and stuff like that (laughs) once you once you reach that level they're writing a horror story about yeah. politics, and it's basically a national party now. So anybody who gives you any flack about writing, you know, blending politics and horror, it's a natural fit. And and so many great, uh, you know, horror tales is basically the the premise is somebody rich finds something and tries to take advantage of it. Like that is you could fit so many different sci-fi and horror movie plots with that. Absolutely. Uh, so I, yeah, I think you're mm-hmm. in a fun sandbox. So and the people that disagree with you. Uh, are, are going to be, you know, it's the whole Howard Stern effect. 
Uh, <laughs> they're the ones that pay the most attention, so be ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten too many angry DMs just yet, but uh, I guess I, I can wait for <laughs> September 5th when a few people more have read it. and <laughs> We'll see. Um, and yeah, kind of building off of that, um, and like Pearl Iscariot, um, I know both of you guys have written, you know, short fiction and I'm just curious kind of what is your approach to, you know, tackling a short story? Um, you don't necessarily have to go through the whole process if you don't want to, but I've always found it fascinating because, you know, we've had a lot of guests on here and we usually ask them, you know, what kind of format do you like novels or, you know, do you prefer novels or novellas or short stories? And, you know, the answers, they usually like all of them, but the answers for a preference usually vary widely, but it seems to be a pretty good consensus that, you know, writing a good short story is like one of the hardest things just because of, you know, word economy. Um, You only have so many words. And I was just curious, you know, how each of you um, approach kind of writing a short story and what, you know, you think makes for a good short story. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can start, Eric. Yeah, well, I, I definitely would call myself a short story person more than a novella or novel person. I think that my brain just naturally works with short stories. I don't know why that is. I I would like to write a longer work at some point, but <laughs> so mm-hmm. far my brain has not taken me there. Um, as far as kind of my approach to the craft, I used to be a big pantser with it, and I'd just go wherever it took me. And then I got into trouble with that a few times, and I, I, at this point, do some outlining beforehand. But I always, I think especially, I think this is especially important with weird fiction. I always give myself a little room to be surprised, and I, in my outlines, I try not to over-explain things. I, I think it's really important to preserve a little mystery for me just as much as the reader. So, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, it's funny that uh, I'll have outlines that end up being four single spaced pages for a story and then the story itself will be <laughs> you know just a couple <laughs> pages longer than that which i think is so silly but uh, uh, I, I guess that's that's where the process needs to take me and um i don't know i just think short stories are fun as hell and they're they're such mm-hmm. a blast to write and they're really um i i think what's so exciting about them is that it's sort of a concentrated challenge like you mentioned word economy i think that's one of those pieces that just really excites me like ooh what can i how much impact can i condense into say 4000 words i think that is such a fun challenge so mm-hmm. that's where i stand on it <laughs> <laughs> how about you fred well you know i started writing short story after short story after short story that's all i wrote were short stories and i think short stories are fantastic if you like dopamine because yes. you can finish yeah. them you can finish them quickly. You don't feel overwhelmed if you get something completely wrong and have to restart the engine. And you can submit. You can get your little uh, spreadsheet or uh, duo trope out, and you can get that hit of submitting and getting a rejection or getting an acceptance that you just don't get with a novel, which is just page after page, day after day. And the other thing with short stories is the way I always approach it, I've had a lot of novels pop off. You know, They were originally short stories. And I was like, wait. Gotta be a no- this gotta be a novel. I'm one of those guys, okay? Yeah. The short story is 
the minimum viable product. I tell that to a lot of young writers, you know, they say, oh, here's a 15,000 word story. <sighs> minimum viable product. That's the way I approach short fiction. If I've got a really interesting idea, an interesting premise, I'm not quite sure what the right character is. I'm not quite sure how to explore it. I just, I just write the short story about it and things just start happening and you can rewrite it and rewrite it and, and explore the premise. And then you can say, oh, okay, maybe this should be a novel or I'm ready to submit this thing. Right. So I just, and, and I need to get back. I, I kind of revisited short stories this year and it was very hard. You know, I did uh, five or six pages and I'm like, I'm still, I'm starting a novel. This is, I got to get to the good stuff. I got to get to the premise that I want to explore. And uh, they're different muscles and you don't want them to atrophy for sure. Now, when it comes to novel writing, you know, I'm over here in the Midwest. Novel writing to me is me having a movie in my head. You know, I, I grew up watching movies. I read, but when I write a book, it's a movie in my head. It, it's me making a movie. So that's the satisfaction I get out of it. Listening to the movie scores, imagining the big cinematic moments and making those happen. Right. And you still get a big dopamine hit whenever you're done <laughs> with the draft <laughs> of a book before it crushes your soul and rewrite. Uh, so. So, yeah, there's there's my take on both pros and cons, depending on what the uh, what the writing aficionado wants. But I, I recommend both for everybody. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, like, I was, because right before you had even said it, like, that's usually what um, a lot of guests have said is, you know, it's two, like, different muscle sets, like, you know, you might approach things a different way just because they're two different, you know, beasts, basically. Yeah, but, I think that something's interesting that Chuck Palahniuk told me recently, uh, and he actually put it. He put it in his craft book, which is one of the better ones I've ever seen. If you're a writer coming up and you want good functional advice without any of the rah rah bullshit or any of that, get the get Chuck Palahniuk's uh, craft book. But he says in it, you know, why would you write it as a novel? You know, you, why would you write a novel if it could be told in another form? Like he's not sitting there mm -hmm. praising the novel. The novel is mm -hmm. a unique medium. And, you know, my answer to that is always, well, I, I don't have the budget to do it in another yeah. form. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's interesting to definitely look at the novel and make those long form storytelling decisions based on does it have to be a novel? You know, can it be something else? Make sure that the format definitely fits the story. Uh, but, you know, don't marry yourself to a format. Marry yourself to the story. That, that's what I think is so cool about uh, writers I've talked to who also work in some other medium because I've talked to some people yeah. who are like who maybe started something as a short story or a novel and then realized oh wait no this is a play or oh wait no this maybe would be interesting as a song I like having that sort of flexibility to let art exist in whatever form it's going to exist in best I think that's kind of cool yeah you know and the, and the reason you can do that is because somebody is pursuing something they enjoy and there, I don't know, there's this wave and I see when I go to a college, uh, you know, writer, I'm not going to say a retreat, but I, let's say I go to a group of college students or even high school students now. They're not concerned with their story. They're concerned with I am going to be a writer and publish a book and it's going to be a hit. And every question <laughs> I get, it's never how would you handle this with a character or uh, asking a question about point of view? It's. How many Twitter followers do you have? 
How do you sell books on Facebook? How do you get, you know, how do you get your book edited so you can get it on Amazon? <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things where I always say I'm 40. So, of course, I'm glad I didn't have Facebook and social media when I was in high school. I'm also glad I didn't have Kindle Direct Publishing when I was 16 or 17. Yeah. Right? Cause the, cause <laughs> yeah. The, and the minute you – and I tell them this. Once you put that book out there with all of your typos and your Microsoft Paint uh, cover – Oh, my gosh. That will be the noose <laughs> by which your second and third and fourth books will hang. And you can do – look, I'm not even – I'm not against self-publishing at all if you do it right. And you know what you're doing. you got to hire the editor. you got to get a graphic mm-hmm. designer. you got to have a marketing yeah. and distribution plan. But they don't. It's let me put this out there and the cream will rise to the top. Well, it's not cream. It's going nowhere. It's staying where it needs to be. It's, it's curdling fast. <laughs> get up and dig the ditch. If you don't like digging the ditch, you're not going to be a great writer. You know, and it takes great stuff mm-hmm. to sell stuff. And I'm still working on it. I'm three books in. I'm no bestseller. I'm still digging the ditch, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's kind of interesting that you uh, that you had mentioned that, that that's kind of, you know, maybe it's not like that everywhere, but kind of kind of the differences in the questions that, you know, you get when you go to, you know, speak somewhere um versus like what you may have gotten before you know things like social media because i'll admit um before i kind of got involved um you know reviewing like indie horror and things like that you know just because i didn't really know anybody um that was you know an indie writer or you know even like say like a midlist writer or something like that you know, my perception until I actually kind of got involved was just like, oh, this person has a book out like, oh, my God, you know, they must be, you know, famous. And like, you know, that, that oh, must that, that's probably that's all that they do. Yeah. And um, well, that's kind of what I mean, like until you really like get to know like other writers and things like I think that's kind of the uh, the common perception, you know rightly or wrongly <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and you know writers is writing is one of these communities where you know talking about politics and socialism and capitalism everything that else the writers realize the pie there's enough pie for everybody and you should grow the pie right like yes you don't see chick-fil-a yeah. blurbing popeyes right? oh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys should check this out right there's there's Everybody in the writing communities that I've been a part of, they're all very supportive. People always make an effort to, to blurb your work or share your work because they realize we got to keep – if you want to keep writing stuff, you need to make sure people keep reading stuff. Help mm-hmm. them discover some Absolutely. new writers out there, and I, and I think that's a, that's a fun part of it is over the years – Making these little connections, meeting somebody at a convention and five years from now, you know, like Bird Box comes out like, hey, I met that guy. I had a drink with him. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, all that stuff can happen. So, uh, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I've always that's kind of like the coolest thing, um, you know, that I find about kind of being involved in doing things like this is like you said, that everybody is kind of like, you know, like you said, just grow the pie like I can't tell you how many great book recommendations I've gotten, not just from other readers or, you know, podcasters and things like that, but just authors who kind of go out of their way to, like you said, bring up other, 
other writers and things like that. Yeah, and I come from a marketing background. Look, my day job is real estate, okay? So, and, and I, I've done marketing consulting for a lot of different industries. And I can tell you, I don't care if it's a showerhead or an agent or a house or a lawn care company or a book. People don't just go out and find stuff on their own. The, the thing that is gold mm-hmm. is somebody saying, hey, you got to read this. Or, mm-hmm. my God, this this showerhead is like a water ride. You need to check this out. Oh, look at my lawn. It's so green. You should do this. And what do people ask on social media now? Recommend something to me. Who did your Who did your lawn? Who did your porch? Who sold your house? Right? Uh, which showerhead did you like? What books are you reading? What shows should we start tonight? So th- that's the secret weapon. There is, you know, growing uh, like a chain reaction of word of mouth. If you want to find a mm-hmm. readership. So and I think that's something that's very interesting about it because it's possible. Right. You can do that. You can reach a couple thousand people. And if it's good and you're hitting the right folks, it'll spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, totally different uh, medium, but that's kind of how I came to uh, watch that show. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Mayor of Easttown. Oh, yeah. But I want to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my wife is true crime. I'm like, Hey, here's a mystery that everybody's talking about. Let's check it out. So, uh, yeah. Four episodes in one night. Kind of a, kind of a deal there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was the same thing. Like you said, a chain reaction. I had initially heard of it and I was kind of like, ah, that sounds cool. But like, as you guys know, you know, just with time and other things that you want to check out, whether it be shows, books, anything like that, you just kind of forget about it for a while. But then like, it was almost every other, you know, I was browsing through Twitter, like almost every other tweet I saw was about, you know, Mayor of Easttown. So finally, like, I'm like, I'll check this out. And sure enough, like you said, uh, Fred, I, I couldn't stop watching it. <laughs> yeah, you have to see it all the way through, right? So, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm a completist, too. If I start something I don't like, I still have to finish it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, same here. <laughs> How about you, Eric? Do you do that or no? Uh, you know, I, I become more okay with abandoning something if I don't like it. Um, I, I used to very much be the kind of person who would have to see it through, regardless of whether I thought whatever, whatever I thought. But I, just thinking about books, I've got too many on my shelf. If, if I don't like <laughs> yeah. one, uh, I mean, I got plenty to, you know, <laughs> pick up. Fill in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Same with TV shows. There are so many out there that. Uh, if I don't like it, I'll find something else. Ah, I envy you. You're like <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Um, like I'll I'll make a full admission on here. Um, even though the last episode we did with Ron, I was like, ah, I don't really watch anymore. You know, I started watching The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. and then I watch it, even though some of the episodes aren't that great. And then since I watched the original, oh wait, there's a spinoff. Well, now I have to watch <sighs> that too. And I have to watch this. Caught in the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, and then I just, I'm like, well, I've already invested so much time. I can't just walk away. (laughs) So I'm I'm the same way with the superhero movies. It's I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm still in there. I got oh god, I gotta watch Loki tonight. Shit. I I think more than being a completionist, I get I get the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a movie that everyone's talking about, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't think I'd especially want to see this, but people keep talking about it. I gotta, I gotta know what's up. So I think that I fall prey to more than uh, completionism. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. an opposite of FOMO out there that I've seen, and I never oh. can wrap my hand around it. And it's when somebody's talking about 
something hot or popular. Star Wars, mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Marvel oh, movies. Yeah. Someone's going to chime in and say, I've never seen one of those. True, yeah. And they're yeah. going to say nothing yep. else. Nobody asked you. Guess what? This thread, it's not for you. Just move on. Uh, who cares if you've never seen Game of Thrones? Here's my <laughs> my uh, non-participation trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I like and ba- that. Basically, I can decode almost every single social media comment or post that I see as "Don't forget about me." Yeah. Don't forget about me. You know, <laughs> hey, I don't watch Game of Thrones. Here I am. Hello. You know. <laughs> Argue with me, right? It's ridiculous. Get out of get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Fred, um, one thing I wanted to ask you um, is kind of the genesis for To Dust You Shall Return. Um, I know that you had started writing this and then it took about, I think, six years to rewrite. And I was just kind of wondering if you could kind of touch on, you know, what was so difficult about, you know, creating the town of Harlow and the events of this book. Well, it wasn't difficult. It was a work of passion. You know, back in 2014 is when I wrote the first draft because I just had a big New York Picador novel coming out and I better write something else. (laughs) So, but, you know, that novel comes out and you got to support that and you got a day job and you got a two year old. Right. So basically, I would write a draft of this novel every year uh, (laughs) and then all of a sudden the YA book thing happened. I wrote another novel in there. That means rewriting that six or seven times. But every year I came back to this at least once, you know, because I I gave it to my agent and it's original uh, first, second draft, 150,000 word form. And it was just, I forget what he said. He goes, Hey, I like that you're swinging for the fence here, but nobody wants 150,000 word like horror action (laughs) thing. You've got to, you've got to do something with this. So, and that's really, uh, every year I'm trying to get rid of 5,000 words and it's hard because you write 20,000 new ones and mm-hmm. characters fundamentally change, you know, and then I finally, you know, you kind of have this moment where, you know, you've cracked the story and five, six drafts in, I never had that epic, satisfying confrontation that everybody was going to demand. Right. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to really pull that off. It was so one-sided, I wrote myself into a corner. There's no way that this can possibly happen. And once I figured out a way to make it happen, and uh, I kind of made Beth the soul of the book, it worked, right? And once it worked, mm-hmm. yeah, I knew I could hand it to an editor or an agent. I could start to get some uh, traction with it. So, But the genesis is actually interesting because everybody's always like, how did you get this idea? And I really never have a good story for that. For anything. I don't think a lot of writers actually do. You know, fairy visited me in the middle of the night and gave me a scroll or something. No. But in this case, you know, my wife writes it in a journal. And just one night, she's always writing in it. I'd never bother looking. No, I'm not going to look at your journal. But just one night, I'm sitting there and she just says, hey, look what? If I die, bury this with me and don't read it. It's like, oh, damn. All right. And that just stuck in my head. I was like, what could possibly be in this thing and my mind goes in a completely different direction than anybody else's and i think that was around the time people were talking about fridging in movies right like oh she got fridged like john wick's dog got fridged right a a, a character that is there just to get killed to motivate 
the hero, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what if she's trying to fridge herself? <laughs> right? She's, she knows, <laughs> you know, it's like, if anything happens to me, this guy is going to get activated and he's going to kill it. I'm, I'm going to, you know, that would mean I'm fridge and he's going to kill you all. So that's my insurance policy is this journal. And by telling him not to read it, that guarantees that he'll read it if I get killed in a gruesome way. And that's where it all, that's where it all started. So the whole thing started was the journal. So I was like, oh, I, I need a, I need a, I need an action hero type or, you know, reactivated badass William money type reactivated character. And what would be the coolest place for him to be in? Like a Stephen King, Castle Rock, Children of the Corn, small town, horrendous situation. And that, that's the book. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that, that's such a cool story because, you know, some of the things that you had kind of mentioned earlier, um, you know, like the reactivated badass and kind of how your, your like early influence were the Stephen King books, like all of that stuff you know, you can kind of pick out in this book. So it's kind of cool to hear that story and kind of how you were able to bring like all these things that you love into it. And it definitely shines through. Yeah. I think, uh, I think a lot of times you can tell if a writer is having a good time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think yeah. it's always evident. And I, I think that always comes through, you know, like there's several scenes in there. I'm like, am I really doing this? And then I did it. And then you get a text message from a friend like, Oh my God, you did this. It's like, yes, <laughs> I left it all on the field, right? You know, you can retire, you can hang up the Jersey and the rafters and feel good about things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, how about you, Eric? Um, cause I know, I know that one of your stories, um, in your collection, um, was one of my favorite stories. And it wasn't until I got to the back and I read the story notes, which, I love that you did that, by the way, because I'm one of those people that kind of loves reading that stuff and kind oh, of hearing yeah. the backstory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the one that I really loved was Under the Hoof and Upon the Horns. And you said that yeah. that was um, like one of your favorites as well. And I was just curious, you know, kind of like how Fred kind of described what it was like for him. You know, what is it kind of like for you when you kind of hit on something like that that's, you know really special to you and like you know finally all comes together and uh in the case of this story you know was it always one of your favorites or did it kind of become one you know after the fact when you were putting the collection together well i think part of it was it was one that required a lot more research because this is one of the few that takes place outside the u.s it takes place in spain and it's during the running of the bulls and of course i wanted to get that right and um so I, I thought the the research process for that one was really fun, but I feel like where I had the most fun with this one would be the the fever dream aspects of it. And I don't want to spoil anything because you know the book's not out just yet. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. There there's something intensely satisfying about crafting um, a, an atmosphere that just feels creepy and unnerving and utterly disorienting, um, but at the same time sort of uh, starkly beautiful and I felt like with that one it just it, for me it clicked and I'm glad it clicked for you too Rich because mm -hmm. <laughs> that was that was one of the ones I just like I was like oh this is a blast I mean it's a it's kind of a bleak story but uh, yeah. I still had a lot of fun with it so <laughs> yeah um, I don't know uh, I'm not even sure if I answered your question there but yeah I, I, I think crafting atmosphere and 
you know, seeing that, oh, you know, it happens to work in this case and then doing research. And I mean, I learned a hell of a lot about running of the bulls and about Pamplona, Spain and all these sorts of things. So that was, uh, yeah, it just was a good time. Yeah, yeah, like you said, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, there's some imagery in there, um, and I'm sure you probably could pinpoint exactly what it is, but, like, (laughs) kind of like when, you know, there's kind of, like, the big reveal in that story. Mm -hmm. That was one of the coolest things, Um, and, you know, both of you um, do a great job with kind of, like, those big moments and kind of, like, these great visuals. like, there was so many, um, you know, that story in particular, Eric, but so many other ones. Um, and then Fred, there's so many throughout the course of the novel, but particularly the opening chapter. Like, that whole opening sequence kind of set, sets you up for, like, you know, I think it's, like, the perfect distillation of, like, that combining of the genres, you know, of kind of like the action crime and the horror. Cause like when I read that first chapter, I was like, I already knew I was like, okay, I'm fully in no matter what happens from here on out. Well, I, I can think of one person who would love to uh, hear you say that. I got to give a shout out to the author, Michael Nye, who read, you know, I try to get it as far as I can up the field and I hand it to a few people I trust and he reads it and he has just a couple of notes. He goes, Hey, you got to have a first chapter or a prologue here that's going to set the tone for what's to come. Otherwise, it's going to seem like a, a mystery thriller, and you know you're just going to pull the rug out from under everybody. You got to set this tone earlier. You got to do a prologue. You got to do a chapter one, and you know from this point of view. And uh, I was like, you know what? And it's always that little voice. It's like, God, you're right. So <laughs> the uh, the very first you know, the prologue of the book, the first chapter of the book is what I wrote last. And what's crazy about it is, mm. I mean, it came out almost uh, just, you know, a perfect birth. You know, it's just like, <laughs> there it was. You had done you'd done the 150,000 plus words time and time again, and you just knew everything that would happen. You knew the themes you wanted to hit. You knew the character so well. You knew the history of the, I knew everything about the town before and after. And it just, boom. So, you know, and, and, and I'm glad that it's resonating with people, people who are reading the prologue are, are like, oh, I'm, I'm in, you know, so uh, I appreciate mm-hmm. you saying that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, the, that and two, besides just the great opener, you know, just even the concept of those two genres, like, I love that. Like when I was uh, I was talking to Shane about it, um, you know, it's its own thing. So I don't want people to expect, you know a certain thing, but the closest thing that I could kind of liken it to, um, is kind of like what Laird Barron is doing with like his Isaiah Coleridge series. Yeah. And you know, I gotta, I gotta chime in, you know, I, I read that, right. I'm working on this since 2014 and I can think of three Mm -hmm. big things that happened in cinema and books. And I'm like, Oh, I was ahead of that, but everybody's going to think I ripped it off. Yeah. (laughs) When I read, when I read a you know a Coleridge novel, I'm like, this is damn. This is exactly what I was hoping to achieve. Now I do think, mm. of course, there's tremendous differences in everything. Yeah. And uh, but I mean, he nailed what I was trying to nail. You know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. you're reading, you're like, damn. And and it's almost like when uh, what do they call that when whenever like a scientist discovers something, 
there, there's a there's a term for somebody else discovers it almost at the same time somewhere else throughout history. And oh, I wonder yeah. if it's like that with art. You know, someone has a, a similar concept or a similar idea, you know, and, and with writers, of course, it mm -hmm. always comes out in a completely different way. But you just wonder if that's that's like that out there, too. But uh, yeah. yes, I loved those books quite a bit. Yeah. And um, again, like there's definitely big differences, I think, between the two, um, like they're their own unique thing. But it's kind of like those things. Uh, you know, I was a former music journalist and like they would always like when they put out, um, you know, like a review of a band or something, it was always recommended if you like. And it was just like they're not exact copies, but it just kind of gives you that general wheelhouse um but i do to your point um think that a lot too about art where it's kind of like this because you've i've seen it a couple times i can't think of any concrete examples where you know creatives may in the same kind of medium like they come up with their own unique thing but it's almost kind of like you described like this unconscious sort of like i don't even know how to describe it really but like where it just kind of seems like each person was working independently but they had these like ideas that aren't the same but maybe tackle you know the same kind of themes or something like that and i've always thought that was like a fascinating phenomenon you know Zack snyder's done it to me twice okay not on purpose <laughs> <laughs> I mean, i'm sitting here going through this and I'm trying to cast it in my head, okay? And I'm like, old, older, kind of out of the game, bespectacled Dave Batista gets called back into action. And then I watch Army of the Dead, and that's exactly what I <laughs> It looks exactly the way I envisioned the glasses. The, you know, he's older, he's kind of disillusioned, he doesn't want to get back into it. I'm like, that's, that's the guy. Uh, and, and the other one is, I won't mention, because it's kind of a spoiler, but... You know, you'll know it when you see it, probably, if you're a big fan of Zack Snyder movies and you see kind of what I did near the climax, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I've always, I've always found that, like, super fascinating, but I didn't really know if anyone had ever really thought of it that way, too. Um, well, yeah, you can take it in a whole other direction. You know, I had a friend of mine who's like, I've got a great idea for a book and he'll never tell me the idea. He's like, well, you know, you'll steal it. Someone will steal this great idea. <laughs> and right there is that's the sign of the amateur, right? Yeah. And then all this, you know, mm -hmm. and then you have someone else. Uh, well, uh, this came out, and I had that same idea. And it's almost like, well, I had the idea for a PlayStation Two that was better than the PlayStation One. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, well, yeah. Why didn't you it's go? It's all in the execution. It's, yeah. Right. You know, mm -hmm. idea, ideas and premises are a dime a dozen. And mm -hmm. here's the here's oh, this is another thing as a writer. Hey, I had a dream last night. Okay, I got your next book. Sit down and listen. Oh my God! Every, your dream is not a story. Your dream is a scene without a point. Your dream might be a premise. It might be a premise if it's a good dream. But other than that, it is not a story. So it's not my next book. So just had to get that out there while I had a, a little forum. Yeah. Hey Fred, yeah. You, you know what you should write about? <laughs> uh, uh, whatever the hell you want because i'm not gonna tell you yeah you know you know what would be interesting you know what you should do yeah you know well that, that, i tell young writers like that's how you uh that's how you read feet you know if you're in a writer's group okay if anybody suggests like oh you need a car crash in this shit 
Yeah, boring. <laughs> if, they're just, if they're just suggesting like scenes out of left field or suggesting things like that, instead of kind of what about or have you thought about or this isn't working because, you know, that's that's how you can kind of see the good criticism from the bad. The bad criticism is make it more for me. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah and, <laughs> you know, I and too, it's funny when you kind of said that thing about like the dreams and stuff like I've never had this happen, but I've always heard of it like you know same similar thing but if someone finds out you're a writer and they're like you know oh you should write a book about this or you should write a book about that um but also like you know i've i'm always kind of curious you know when you guys started out you know writing did you always want to did you always kind of know that you were going to gravitate to sort of darker fiction or did you like initially start out with maybe other things and then just kind of found that you tended to veer in towards the darker end of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'll go first on this one because it's right at the tip of my tongue. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like Bane himself, I was born in darkness here when it came to <laughs> writing stories. Okay. And the, the watershed moment for me was in high school. Uh, I wrote, a, you know, we wrote stories and poems in class. No one ever wanted to read them aloud. The teacher would read them aloud. Everybody always knew which one was mine. And all the heads would turn and look at me, and someone would just go, man, that's fucked up. And that's when I knew I either wanted to write dark horror fiction that could really do that to people, or I think if I didn't have that, I'd probably be in, like, stand-up comedy, because that's the only other place where you can mm-hmm. get them those kinds of reactions out of people, you know? So, uh, yeah. so, yeah, I was, I was dark from the start. And the only other time I've really explored different genres is with a thread of horror inside of it. Uh, you know, so I always think there's a little vein of horror to mine in there to keep things, you know, really interesting. Mm-hmm. How about you, Eric? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's strange. Cause I, when it was, I would say in middle school is when I, started writing uh a whole lot more and i uh started with fantasy i was very much into fantasy back then and it's not something i'm so much into now but i started with that and then high school i sort of moved more into comedy writing in part because it was one of those types of writing where you can really get people's attention and it feels good Mm -hmm. to make people laugh (laughs) and i was a shy (laughs) kid and so it yeah you know it felt doubly good it's like okay you know i might not be able to hold necessarily a great conversation with someone. I might be a little bit socially awkward, but when I have the time to think about something and move the words on the page in the way that best works, I can create this sort of magic. Um, But uh, I mean, I still sometimes write stuff that can be comedic and some stuff with fantasy elements, but I would say the, the real shift toward darker writing probably happened in my twenties. And, um, I don't know, I, I am pretty firmly there at this point. And, um, mm. I mean, I still like to write things with a little humor in them, but that humor is definitely a dark inflection to it. And, um, I don't know. I, I mean, some of it is just reflective of, uh, I think the state of the world, which I think is rather dark. And I think also, um, 
I don't know. Just <laughs> it, it seems yeah. to be what I gravitate to. Um, I, I get delight in dark things. It's not uh, it's not an exercise in misery for me to dwell in the dark. I think that it's it's something that's genuinely enjoyable for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I actually think I know the reason. It's yeah. negative visualization that increases happiness, as proven by Stoic philosophy and Marcus Aurelius. Oh. <laughs> so, I know that might sound like bullshit. But it's actually true. You know, I read a, a really interesting book by Oliver Berkman, and I've seen a lot of literature on this subject. We are in a culture where it's positive thinking all the time, positive, 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 look on the bright side, when the thing that actually increases your happiness, clinically proven and also anecdotally proven over thousands of years, is negative visualization, which your mom kind of knew when she said it could be worse. You could be like a starving kid in some third world country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually thinking about – Wow, you know, I have it much better. I could be, I could wake up today and uh, not have my health, or not have my family, or not have my pet. Uh, that stuff actually makes you appreciate what you have even more, and that's one of the reasons mm. that I think that horror is popular. It, 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 it's negative visualization. It's like, you know what? I'm having a bad day, but I didn't get, you know, planted on a meat hook in an old house. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've so never heard of that. Part of it. Yeah. Uh, and Stephen King came close when he, you know, he said basically horror is rehearsal for death. Right. It's like that. that you, you survived. Right. It's OK. They're dead. I'm not. I feel pretty good about things right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd never I'd never really thought of it that way or thought of that. But, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and uh, th- th- I go into a whole spiel on this. You know, when I go talk to high schools, I usually talk about this kind of stuff because it's more useful. Uh, authors reading their stuff can be so boring. I give a little talk, a little bit of this, that, and the other. But, uh, you know, it's the whole positive thinking aspect of it. And the other thing is, well, you got to set these big goals. You can do anything you want. Goals have a real bad case of survivorship bias. Everybody wanted to win the gold medal. Everybody wanted to be the best on their team. Everybody, wa- everybody, everybody wants to be rich or successful or whatever their goals are. Everybody in that field wants the same thing. So goal setting in and of itself mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a healthy thing if you don't have the right mindset and the right plan to go with it. I have a goal to be a New York Times bestselling author. That's a terrible goal. That is not a process <laughs> goal. That is an outcome goal. Mm-hmm. You can't control that. What can you control? That's the, the basic tenet of Stoic philosophy is just to ask, what can you control? Well, I can write a page a day. I can do that. You know, and if that becomes what brings you happiness, if digging the ditch with that page a day is what makes you happy, well, guess what? You are far more likely to be the best-selling author than the person who hates to dig the ditch or only does it to get the water. So that's my philosophical aside. Check. Moving on. So. <laughs> no, you know that, like I said, that makes um that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, uh, two, I was just kind of curious, kind of going off of that, uh, thing about like, if you always wrote darkness and the earlier, you know, thing about people being like, well, I have, you know, being that you guys both write, um, you know, darker things, did you ever get that, you know, kind of age old thing from maybe friends or whatever? Like, why don't you write something nicer? (laughs) They're more happy. I have this exact story. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just made it free on Amazon like this week. Anyway, my wife said, why can't you write a love story? 
Okay, so <laughs> I wrote a love story. This old couple, it's this metaphorical vines growing together thing. It's this sweet old couple. I mean, I poured everything I could into it, and I hit the midpoint of this story. I'm like, how can I test their love for each other? How can I prove their love for each other? Okay, somebody forces them to torture each other. Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> so here's the fundamental choice, right, of the story is do you love your wife enough to kill her with the pipe wrench or are you going to continue to torture her by taking her teeth out with it? And I think I nailed a pretty good story. It was, uh, it was in an anthology. It's always a favorite. People always talk about it, and it's the one reason she has never read anything by me ever again. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, for half of it, she was in, oh, my God, that's so sweet. That's so nice. I like these people. And then, of course, they are in peril. And, uh, yeah, I, I do get that, but here's what happens. I try to do it, and I fail. <laughs> but it was fun. You know, I, I go right – I steer right into the darkness – and, and it comes back to that another Stephen King thing that he says, where do you get these crazy ideas? Why do you assume that I have a choice? And I think <laughs> that's – we all have different filters. The pipe branch caught in mine. So uh, if you want to check out A Pound of Flesh, it is out there just completely free on, on Amazon because I put a little page in there about the new book coming out. And uh, So, yeah, that one's out there. I'm definitely checking that out. Checking that out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think people need to widen their understanding of what a love story can be, because I think that there are uh, some exceedingly dark stories out there, some of which might involve torture, mm -hmm. that are also love stories. And I think it's unfair to suggest that a love story has to be a, something that feels bubbly and fuzzy and, and oh, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just read a story about... Um, a, a conversion therapy tick cult that I would consider a, uh, a a love story in many ways, even though there are people getting pushed into uh, essentially hot tubs full of ticks and devoured. Um, I think that there's a love story in there, though. <laughs> it's a very dark one, but there's a love story. Well, here's the mm -hmm. trick. People aren't interested in love. They're interested in romance. True. Yeah. Completely yeah. different things. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. You know, hey, all these uh, rom-coms that you see, guess what? In six months, they're sick of each other. <laughs> after the movie ends, six months, nope, not happy. Not after what I've seen you guys go through in just an hour and a half. This one ain't lasting. So, uh, yeah, but that's, yeah, you want quirky romance. That's the appeal of it because love is a thing. Love can be tested. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, action movies are love stories. I love this dog or this woman. So much, I will literally kill everybody. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? That and and all that to say, I'm not against uh, romance stories either. I think that mm -hmm. when they're done extraordinarily well, I can absolutely get behind it. I think about one of my favorite ones in recent memory, and probably I need to watch more, uh, watch or read more romance and get a more updated one. But would be a the movie The Big Sick with Kumail Nanjiani yeah. that's based on his real-life love story with his wife, or romance story. I think that's just one of the most delightful movies um, that I've seen in a very long time. And uh, mm -hmm. it just oh, it does make my heart swell. <laughs> that was a good one. That was that, wonderful. I, I, yeah, I saw that. And, you know, like, 
you had said too, like with like how they can be darker, like one of my favorite movies, you know, not even just, you know, one of those elements or one that's a horror movie, but just one of my favorite movies, period, is the uh, Benson and Moorhead movie Spring, which I think is like a yes. perfect kind yeah. of example of that. And I don't know, have you seen that movie, uh, Fred, Spring? Doesn't ring a bell, which is rare because I feel like I've seen every movie. Oh, it's know. it's, not a big it's stick, but yeah, it's so good. It's so good. I don't want to spoil it for you, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with those uh, directors, but they do a lot of really cool genre films, like uh, Synchronic and stuff. I, I haven't seen Synchronic yet, is. but. Yeah, I'm gonna watch that movie now because you recommended it. Just the same way if you would have said the showerhead is great. <laughs> that showerhead. Yeah. It just while happened live. While you're at it, if you haven't seen The Endless, uh, also by Benson and Moorhead, that one is probably my favorite of theirs that I've seen. That I it's... have seen. So if there's oh, okay. more in their catalog, mm-hmm. I'm on it. And yeah, you know, I love speaking their of stuff. Romance, uh, you know, the last book was a, a young adult romance, as dark and tortured as I could make it, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. But I remember asking my agent once, like, what, what is YA really? You know, what, what is YA? He just says, hmm, teenagers are obsessed with death. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll roll with that. Like, it's got to be first person. Uh, and teenagers are obsessed with death is really what it was. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, romance can be dark. You know, hey, I haven't read a John Green book yet that doesn't have a nice, thick, dark thread kind of running through it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I think, uh, you know, romance and love is tested by the horrors of life that are inevitable. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there wouldn't be any love or romance. You know, you, you need that negative space to lean against. Mm-hmm. And just out of curiosity, Fred, um, like you had said that, um, that book was kind of a like a very dark YA book, and I was just curious: did you set out to write kind of a YA story, or did it just was did the story come to you, and then you realized it was a YA story? So, Heart Does Not Grow Back is coming out. Uh, they wanted me to, you know, I'm, I'm writing. I'm, you know, let's pitch this, let's do that. Can you do this interview? Can you write this article? And mm-hmm. I wrote an essay. I wrote an essay about uh, getting burned and how valuable it was basically and i turned it in and he goes hey this is too good to waste as an essay this is your next book right okay you know how i said i always write a short story first kind of a thing yeah and i said i can't do it because there's one part of the plot i couldn't crack you know the character makes a very specific choice uh that can't be kind of undone so once i cracked that part i was like i got it i got it (laughs) because there had to be a way to undo it so i wrote it and it felt like one of those books I had to write in order to write everything else, you know, because I did have you know, a lot of crazy stuff happen uh, throughout my childhood and my teenage years. And as a matter of fact, the first draft of that book, I was you know, told by my agent, it was too dark and no one will ever believe all this stuff happened to this guy. Pause. <laughs> did all this shit happen to you? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and change it. You know, and, and it was the, the wisest decision I ever make with these things. The more distance I got from myself, the better it became. Mm. So now mm. when someone reads that and I think it's some first person biography, it is not. It is 98 percent fiction. There's two things in there that actually happened to me that gave me 
kind of research that I needed to make it realistic to happen to this character, and that's it. Hmm. Yeah, and that and that was you know that's kind of interesting that it started out kind of like as like you had said like an essay because um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I kind of read um, like the synopsis. And then, like you had said, um, I believe it was, like, on your uh, website, even, kind of, like, the things that you have, that you'd gone through and kind of, like, you know, being burned and having the scars. And I had always wondered if, like, you know, that is what inspired you to write the book. But it kind of makes sense that, in a way, it did, because it started as, um, like, an essay. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, when he says, I think this would be a great YA love story. And those are very popular. I, I, I can't help but think this would be a very marketable book. You know, this could find a wide audience. And as a matter of fact, here we are, uh, you know, it was nominated for the Gateway Readers Award in Missouri. I'm going to like 10 high schools in Missouri uh, talking about this book, talking about this story. And I think since I've talked to so many high schools and stuff, it's nice to have something in my catalog that a teenager can read without their parents going completely apeshit. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's nice to go out there. And then when someone says, well, do you have any other, you have new book coming out? Well, sure. Yeah. It's a dust you shall return. You should not read this until you're at least 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, their parents probably, if they had found that one in particular, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I read and watched worse when I was an 80s kid, you know, but I, I, it's definitely yeah. different now. Uh, so, yeah. hey. And, if, go ahead, Fred. Sorry. You no, know, it is what it is. If some kid bootlegs it and wants to read it behind his mother's back, great. <laughs> I'm on, that's something I would do. I totally approve. It's not going to kill you to, to read a, a fictional horror novel, you know. <laughs> oh, there's bad words and violence. that's something i think about a lot because i so i'm a teacher and i teach high school and one of the classes i teach is a senior horror literature elective and i think about that a lot in terms of curating the classroom bookshelf i'm like okay you know these they are seniors but you know what is what is a parent gonna you know uh, snap at me about and call my administrator about uh, if i put on the shelf and (laughs) they find in their kid's hand um, I do sometimes wonder about that, but uh, another part of me is like, eh, you know, I read some pretty wild stuff when I was fairly young. Yeah, it didn't mess me up. I I would say it enriched my life, and so it's sort of a, an odd position to be in, um, curating books for kids who are soon to be not kids anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, I can tell you, I've talked to enough horror authors and been to enough conventions, horror authors especially, are the nicest sweetest most well-adjusted people i've ever met and i don't know if it's because of the therapy of just you know killing people on the page or you know doing all that you know getting it all out so to speak Mm -hmm. uh i don't know what it is but whore has never made a nasty author that i have met uh you know i'm not going to say that there's not some bad ones out there of course there's some bad apples i'm sure but i think in general uh people who expose themselves to these types of stories are, are well adjusted. And I don't know, like I said, I think it's that negative visualization thing. So maybe I'm biased, but there you go. <laughs> no, I, 
I think that makes sense. And, you know, it's kind of funny hearing you guys both say that um, because I kind of had the same upbringing. And it seems like almost every person on this show without fail, um, like when you kind of ask them, you know, how how did you get in the horror? It always is like some kind of story of I either saw this movie or read this book when I was way younger than I probably should have. And I always found that funny that, you know, it seems to be kind of like a universal thing within horror, that kind of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. So, hey, lucky for them, they got the good stuff early. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're raising a whole generation of uh, love superhero stories. Oh. <laughs> Look, I love them, too. I love superhero stories you know, when I was way younger. Uh, but I just think that you can totally wring something out. And, and, and you just have this factory just pumping them out one after the other. And it's just hard to get excited anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've. I had you guys on here for quite a while. I don't want to keep you too late. Um, but just kind of one thing. Is there anything coming out? I mean, we kind of already talked about it. But anything coming out that you want listeners to know about? You know, release dates, things like that. And, um, you know, any, any if you want to tell people kind of anything new that you're working on. You go first. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> Well, I uh, I have Nightmare Yearnings, my debut collection, coming out in September. I'm also happy for listeners of the podcast who are interested. If you want to get an early copy, I uh, – jeez, um, uh, I can't believe I'm dropping my real name on here. Anyway, um, so I got that. I got my I collection coming out. Um, I also have uh, an anthology I'm editing coming up here in July for writers who are interested. The Anthology is called Antifa Splatterpunk. It is a collection of, as the name would suggest, anti-fascist splatterpunk stories. Uh, 100 bucks for any accepted stories, and I'm open for submissions anytime throughout July. And beyond that, I guess one exciting thing I have coming up is a uh, story called Silver Dollar Eyes in Scott J. Moses's uh, What One Wouldn't Do anthology. So that's, yeah. that's going to be pretty exciting. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to all those anthologies. And uh, obviously, as someone who's read Nightmare Yearnings, everyone definitely pick up a copy. Um, It's one of those rare collections where, you know, like normally I'll read a couple stories, set it down. I think I read it in like one one go, which is pretty rare. So, man, definitely recommend it (laughs) anytime, Eric. And uh how about you, Fred? Anything um, coming up for you? Uh, well, yeah, so you can go on Amazon and get a pound of flesh, which I talked about today. It's free on Amazon. It's a 9,000-word longish story with a couple of chapters of To Dust You Shall Return tucked in there. So you can grab that with a couple of clicks. To Dust You Shall Return is out June 22nd. Uh, just get it through your favorite bookseller. Look me up anywhere. Just Google my name, Fred Venturini. You can find me everywhere. I'm just a sporadic social media person. Uh, but <laughs> I try to respond when people reach out about stuff. And uh, I'm actually working on something new. And I guess this is a good place to at least pitch it a little bit. So slashers, right? 
So mm-hmm. what I've been talking about to people, I have a first draft done. I'm really pleased with it, but there's a lot of more stuff I want to cram into here. So Michael Myers shows up Haddonfield every couple of years, and everybody acts like it's just a story. It's just a legend. That didn't really happen. Yeah, it's pretty clear he was there just two years ago and killed a bunch of people. <laughs> Crystal Lake, same thing. Oh, that Jason story didn't happen. Yes, it did. I w- it was two years ago. It totally happened. How did you not see all the police there, right? <laughs> so I just had this little little nugget of a thought. If you had this town, this Haddonfield or Crystal Lake, whatever you want to call it, and the slasher keeps showing up and is obviously supernatural and obviously going to keep coming back, what kind of people stay in that town and why? So I, I guess that if, if it was a, a, a Netflix or HBO prestige series called Haddonfield, uh, that's kind of the vibe that I'm going for it is, mm. is the love letter to slashers, but to make the slasher just kind of an elemental force that shows up like a hurricane and everybody else, you know, is kind of goes haywire. So uh, that's what I'm working on. I'm calling that one. He returns. So hopefully I'll have that done soon and get that out to some people and see if we can get that one out as the next novel. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on with me. That sounds really cool, Fred. Yeah, I, I would read that. Same here, yeah. Well, good. There's two more votes that I should probably rewrite the manuscript and keep this thing going. So, and once again, <laughs> oh. I'm not, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm not afraid of people stealing story ideas because yeah. I just pitched it right here. <laughs> so grab your pen. If you could beat me to it, feel free. But you're not doing what I'm doing with this, I guarantee you. I'm, I'm going crazy places with it. And uh, I guess before I wrap up, there's one more thing I want to say since we were kind of touched on things that piss writers off. Mm-hmm. Was it the doctor the other day uh, for a procedure? It was a pre, it was a very casual uh, pre-procedure meeting, right? And it just made me realize how often you get this kind of stuff. You know, you say, what do you, know, what do, you do? Oh, I got a book coming out. Oh, you're an author. You wrote a book? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to write a book when I have time. Oh, when yeah. I have, that's the other one. It's like, oh, when I get some time, I'm going to write a book. You know, uh, so this was one of the few moments, you know, he's come right back. He's, hey, uh, yeah, uh, I think when I get some time, I'm going to write a book. I was like, you know what? I feel the same thing about urology. I'm a urologist <laughs> in my part time, you know. And uh, the other thing is people always want stuff for free from writers. Just give me your book for free, right? Hey, look, if I was a doctor, would you come to my house for knee surgery? No, you go book an appointment in my office. That's the other thing, too. I can't believe a dozen hours of entertainment for $12 is too much for people nowadays. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's crazy. $12. Oh, the hardcover for that is $30. Don't buy it. I don't care. Just don't act like it's not worth it. Oh, man. I'm with you, Fred. Okay, well, I got it all out. I think I'm done saying stuff if you want to cut me off. So, <laughs> no, I just want to I want to thank you both for uh, coming on the show tonight. I had a great time. It was great getting to meet both of you. Um, again, um, loved both of your books. Everyone, go pick up a copy of Nightmare Yearnings, and also go out and pick out up a copy of To Dusty Shall Return. Both excellent books, and both are definitely going to end up on my year end list this year. So thanks again, Eric. Absolutely. Thanks again, Eric. Thanks, Fred. I hope you guys have a good night and for coming on the show. Thank you you all so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Good to meet you both. Yep. Good night. Good night.
Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> 